42. Fallacies you need to be told about. Michael Humer, Ph.D. Michael Humer is a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Now I'm going to tell you about some more interesting errors that human beings are prone to. If you're like most people, you probably actually need to be told about these things. Anecdotal evidence. Often, people try to support generalizations by citing a single case, or a few cases that support the generalization. Scientists call this, anecdotal evidence. Example, you try to show that immigrants are dangerous by citing a few examples of immigrants who committed crimes. Anecdotal evidence has two problems. First, usually, when people do this, they don't pick a case randomly. They search for a case that supports their conclusion while ignoring cases that don't. C. Cherry-picking. Second, random variation. Even if you pick the cases randomly, it can easily happen just by chance that you picked a few atypical cases. In the immigration example, what you should actually do is look up the statistics on crime rates for immigrants compared with native-born citizens. Assumptions. One of the major ways we go wrong is that we simply assume things that we don't know. Unfortunately, when you assume things, you go wrong a lot more often than you expect. You should assume that most of your assumptions are wrong. It is hard to combat this, because we often don't notice what we're assuming, and it doesn't even occur to us to question it. Here are a couple of examples. Suppose you hear a statistic about how common intimate partner violence is in the United States. This is where someone physically abuses their girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse. You naturally assume that the vast majority of these cases are men beating up women, and you might just go on reasoning from that implicit assumption. In reality, though, survey evidence suggests that men and women suffer this kind of abuse about equally often. Or suppose you hear a statistic stating that most murder victims are killed by a family member or someone they knew. You naturally assume that most murders result from domestic disagreements, and that the murders are committed by ordinary people who lost control during an argument with a family member, or something like that. In fact, it turns out that almost everyone who commits a murder has a prior criminal record. Also, the vast majority of the victims are also criminals. The category, a family member or someone they knew, includes such people as the victim's drug dealer, the victim's criminal partner, the victim's fellow gang members, and so on. You just assumed that these were ordinary people, but the original statistic didn't say that. I can't really properly convey to you just how often assuming things leads you astray. You need to experience being wrong over and over again in order to appreciate the point. Unfortunately, most people never come to appreciate the point, because they never check on their assumptions to find out how many are wrong. Base rate neglect. A base rate is the frequency with which some type of phenomenon happens in general. E.g., the base rate for heart disease is the percentage of people in the general population who have heart disease. The base rate for war is the percentage of the time that a country is at war, etc. When you want to know whether some kind of event is going to happen, or has happened, etc., the best place to start is with the base rate. If you want to know whether you have a certain disease, first find out how common the disease is in general. 
If 1% of the population has it, then a good initial estimate is that you have a 1% chance of having it. From there, you should adjust that estimate up or down according to any special risk factors or low risk factors that you have. Most people don't do this. People commonly ignore base rates. Example, suppose there is a rare disease that afflicts one in a million people. There is a test for the disease that's 90% accurate. Suppose you took the test, and you tested positive, the test says you have the disease. Question. Given all this information, what is the probability that you have the disease? Many people think it is 90%. Even doctors sometimes get this wrong, which is disturbing. The correct answer is about 0.0009%, less than 1 in 100,000. Explanation. Say there are 300 million people in the country. Of these, 3001 millionth have the disease, and 299,999,700 don't. The test is 90% accurate, so 270 of the 300 people who have the disease would test positive, that's 90%, and 29,999,970 of the 299,999,700 who don't have the disease would also test positive, that's 10%. So, out of all the people who test positive, the proportion who actually have the disease is 270, 270 plus 29,999,970, approximately equals 0.0009. Cherry picking. Cherry picking, refers to the practice of sifting through evidence and selecting out only the bits that support a particular conclusion, ignoring the rest. Simple example. I have a bag of marbles. I want to convince you that most of the marbles in the bag are black. I look inside the bag, which is full of many colors of marbles, black, red, teal, chartreuse, and so on. I pick out five black ones, show them to you, and say, see, these marbles came from this bag. I don't show you any of the other colored marbles that were in the bag. You might be misled into concluding that the bag is full of black marbles. That's like what people do in political debate. If I want to convince you, say, that affirmative action is bad, I might search for cases where affirmative action was tried and it didn't work or it had harmful effects. If I want to convince you that it's good, I search for cases where it really helped someone. Of course both kinds of cases exist, it's a big society, full of millions of people. Almost any policy is going to benefit some people and harm others. Because of this, you should be suspicious when someone tells you stories designed to support a conclusion. Always ask yourself whether they have a bias that might have caused them to cherry-pick the data. Confirmation bias. When asked to evaluate a theory, people have a systematic tendency to look for evidence supporting the theory and not look for evidence against it. Opening parenthesis. This happens especially for theories that we already believe. But can also happen for theories we initially have no opinion about. E.g., if asked whether liberal politicians are more corrupt than conservative politicians, a conservative would search through his memory for any cases of a liberal doing something corrupt, and he would not search through his memory for cases of conservatives being corrupt. 
a liberal, on the other hand, would do the reverse. Each just looks for cases that support his existing belief, and does not look for evidence against it. This is called, confirmation bias. To combat this, it is necessary to make a conscious effort to think of exceptions to the generalizations that you accept, and to look for evidence against your existing beliefs. Whenever you feel inclined to cite some examples supporting belief A, stop and ask yourself whether you can also think of similar examples supporting tilde A. Credulity. Humans are born credulous. We instinctively believe what people tell us, even with no corroboration. We are especially credulous about statistics or other information that sounds like objective facts. Unfortunately, we are not so scrupulous when it comes to accurately and non-misleadingly reporting facts. There is an enormous amount of disinformation in the world, particularly about politics and other matters of public interest. If the public is interested in it, there is bullshit about it. I have noticed that this bullshit tends to fall into three main categories. First, ideological propaganda. If you, learn, about an issue from a partisan source, for instance, you read about gun control on a gun control advocacy website, or you hear the day's news from a conservative radio show, you will get pretty much 100% propaganda. Facts will be exaggerated, cherry-picked, deceptively phrased, or otherwise misleading. Normally, you will have no way of guessing the specific way in which the information is deceptive, making the information essentially worthless for drawing inferences. Second, sensationalism. Mainstream news sources make money by getting as many people as possible to watch their shows, read their articles, and so on. To do that, they try to make everything sound as scary, exciting, outrageous, or otherwise dramatic as possible. Third, laziness. Most people who write for public consumption are lazy and lack expertise about the things they write about. If a story has some technical aspect, e.g., science news, journalists probably won't understand it, and they may get basic facts backwards. Also, they often just talk to one or a few sources and print whatever those sources say, even if the sources have obvious biases. I can't give you adequate evidence for all that right now. But here's an anecdote that illustrates what I mean. I once heard a story on NPR, National Public Radio, a left-leaning radio news source. It was about a man on death row who was about to be executed. From the story, it appeared that the man was innocent. New evidence had emerged after the trial, several of the witnesses had recanted their testimony, yet the courts had refused to grant a new trial. The only remaining hope was for the governor to grant a stay of execution. There was an online petition that listeners could sign. Usually, I just accept news stories and then go on with my day. But on that occasion, I decided to look into the story before signing the petition. With a little googling, I found the court decision from the convict's most recent appeal, which had been denied. I read the decision which contained a summary of the facts of the case and an explanation of the judge's decision. What it revealed was that the NPR story was bullshit. What NPR said was basically just what the defendant's lawyer had claimed. 
The court carefully explained why each of those claims was bogus and provided no basis for an appeal. The most striking claim, which had initially made me think the defendant was probably innocent, was that multiple witnesses had recanted their testimony. What had actually happened was this. The defense lawyer went back to the witnesses many years after the original trial and questioned them on details of the case. Several of them either couldn't remember the details, or reported details slightly differently, e.g., what color shirt someone was wearing. The lawyer described this as recanting their testimony, but none of them had changed their mind about the defendant being guilty. The NPR journalists had apparently just credulously reported what the lawyer told them, without bothering to look up the court documents from the case. Why would they do that? Three reasons. I. Ideological bias. The story painted the death penalty in a bad light, which a left-leaning news outlet would like. E. Sensationalism. The story of an innocent man about to be executed grabbed the audience's attention and inflamed their passions. E. Laziness. Checking on the story would have required work. Why put in that work when you know that almost all of your audience will just accept whatever you say? Long experience has led me to think that that case was not unusual. This is the way news media work. Lesson. Popular media stories are untrustworthy. By the way, it's no good checking them against other popular news sources, because they basically all copy from each other. That also goes for, e.g., most bloggers, your next-door neighbor, and other casual information sources. For relatively reliable information, look at academic books and articles and government reports, e.g., Census Bureau reports, FBI crime reports. Dogmatism and overconfidence. People who study rationality have a notion called calibration. Your beliefs are said to be well calibrated when your level of confidence matches the probability of your being correct. For example, for all the beliefs that you hold with 90% confidence, about 90% of them should be true. When you're 100% confident of things, they should be true 100% of the time. Etc. Most people are badly calibrated. In fact, almost everyone errs in a particular direction. Almost everyone's beliefs are too confident. People say they are 100% certain of a bunch of things, but then it turns out that only, say, 85% of those things are actually true. There are psychological studies of this. This is the problem of overconfidence. Almost everyone has it, and almost no one has the opposite problem, underconfidence, so you should assume that you are probably overconfident too. You should therefore try to reduce your confidence in your beliefs, particularly about controversial things, and particularly for speculative and subjective claims. Ideological, cause, judgments. Back in 2008-2009, America suffered a severe economic recession. A lot of people lost money, lost their jobs, and were generally unhappy. What set it off was problems in real estate. Home prices had gotten very high. Then they dropped. A lot of people started defaulting on, not repaying, their home loans, banks were in a lot of trouble, and other investors and financial companies were in trouble because they'd made investments that depended on home prices staying high and home loans getting repaid. In the wake of the crisis, 
many people tried to explain why it had all happened. This included people with opposing ideologies. Roughly, there were people with pro-government and people with anti-government ideologies, and both tried to explain the crisis. Can you guess what the two sides said? The pro-government people said the recession happened, because, there wasn't enough regulation, and they listed regulations that, if they had been in place, would probably have prevented the crisis. The anti-government people said the recession happened, because, there was too much government intervention, and they listed existing government policies that, if they hadn't been in place, the crisis probably wouldn't have happened. Notice that the basic factual claims of both sides are perfectly consistent. It's perfectly possible that there were some actions the government took such that, if the government hadn't taken them, the crisis wouldn't have happened, and also there were some actions the government failed to take such that, if it had taken them, the crisis wouldn't have happened. It's perfectly plausible that the crisis could have been averted in more than one way, either by adding certain government interventions, or by removing some other government interventions. Which alternative you focus on depends on your initial ideology. Both sides took the episode to further support their ideology. We have too much government, or, we need more government. These conclusions were supported by their respective causal interpretations. The recession was caused by government interventions, or, the recession was caused by government failure to intervene. Who was right? Assume the facts are as stated, that some additional interventions would have prevented the recession and the repeal of some other interventions would have prevented the recession. In that case, we should either accept both causal claims or reject both causal claims, depending on what we mean by cause. If we mean sole cause, then we should reject both causal claims, i.e., we should say the recession was not caused either by government intervention or by failure to intervene. If we just mean, factor such that, if it were changed, the effect wouldn't have happened, then we should accept both causal claims, the recession was caused by intervention and by failure to intervene. It's okay to say that X was caused by Y, provided that you also recognize all the other things that caused X in the same sense. If there are many different causes, then you need additional evidence or arguments to establish which one of those causes is the best one to change. In the recession case, we would need independent arguments to establish which cause of the recession, intervention or failure to intervene, it would have been better to change. Oversimplification. People very often oversimplify philosophical issues. Say you're thinking about the morality of abortion. Attempting simplification would be to say that there are two positions, pro-choice and pro-life, or pro- and anti-abortion. Either fetuses are people and killing them is murder, or fetuses aren't people and killing them is perfectly fine. But this overlooks the possibility that late-term fetuses are people, but early-term fetuses are not. Or maybe personhood comes in degrees and fetuses become progressively more person-like as they develop. Or maybe fetuses are persons in some senses, but non-persons in other senses. So there is a range of possible positions, not just two. Viewing things in black and white terms is a common oversimplification. We look at two simple positions rather than considering a spectrum of possibilities. The problem is that often, 
the truth is a more subtle position that doesn't clearly fall under either of the two simplest categories of view. P-hacking. Similar to cherry-picking, P-hacking, or data mining, sometimes happens in science. A scientist has a large amount of statistical data, with different variables. Even if all the data is completely random, any complex set of data is going to show some patterns that look significant. Essentially, one can take the data and use it to test many different possible hypotheses. Even if all the hypotheses are false. Eventually, just by chance, due to random variations in the data, one of the hypotheses will pass a test for statistical significance. This is one reason why many published research results, especially in medicine, psychology, and social science, are false. E.g., a study will find that some food increases the risk of cancer for non-smoking, middle-aged men, but then someone tries to replicate it, and they don't get the same result, because the original result was just due to chance. Speculation. Speculative claims are essentially guesses about things that we lack the evidence to establish as yet. Claims about the future, or claims about what would have happened in hypothetical alternative possibilities, are good examples of speculative claims. Example, you're arguing about whether it's good for government to try to stimulate the economy by spending money. You say this is good because, e.g., if the government hadn't stimulated the economy back in 2009, the recession would have continued much longer. This is speculative. We don't know what would have happened, because in fact the government did pass a stimulus plan, and we can't now go back in time and change that to see what would have happened if they hadn't. The problem with speculative claims is that people with different philosophical, or political, religious, etc., beliefs tend to find very different speculations plausible. E.g., people who are suspicious of government will find it more plausible that, without government stimulus, the recession would have been shorter. So arguments that start from speculative premises are typically not rationally persuasive. Advice. If you want to rationally persuade people of something, try to avoid speculation. Subjective claims. Roughly, a subjective claim is one that requires a judgment call, so it can't just be straightforwardly and decisively established. For example, the judgment that political candidate A is unqualified for the office, the judgment that it's worse to be unjustly imprisoned for five years than to be prevented from migrating to the country one wants to live in, the judgment that Louis C.K.'s jokes are offensive, etc. Opening parenthesis. This differs from speculative claims. Because in the case of speculation, there might be ways that the claim could in principle be decisively verified. It just hasn't in fact been verified. Note, I am not saying that there is no fact or no answer as to whether these things are the case or that they are dependent on people's opinions. What I am saying is that there are not clear, established criteria for these claims so it is difficult to verify them. Maybe it's true that Louis is offensive, but if someone doesn't find him offensive, there is no decisive way of proving that he is. People often rely on subjective premises when arguing about controversial issues. The problem with this is that subjective claims are more open to bias than relatively objective, that's the opposite of subjective claims. 
So people with different philosophical, or political, or religious, views will tend to disagree a lot about subjective claims. And for that reason, they are ill-suited to serve as premises in philosophical, political, or religious arguments. Advice. Try to base your arguments, as much as possible, on relatively objective claims. Treatment effects versus selection effects. Let's say you have created a new educational program for preschool children. You want to know whether it improves learning or not. What you would do is look at kids after they've had your program, and compare them to kids of the same age who didn't have your program, and see if the first group perform better on tests. Let's say kids who had your special program perform 10% better on later tests, on average. Then you'd probably conclude that your program works. But wait. Here is another possibility. Suppose, as would usually be the case, that the kids who entered your special educational program were the kids whose parents chose to enroll them in that program. The rest were kids whose parents did not decide to enroll them. Furthermore, maybe the parents who enroll their kids in special programs are on average smarter and value education more than the parents who don't do that. Furthermore, maybe intelligence and value placed on learning are partly genetic, and so these parents passed those traits on to their kids. So the children who went into your program were already, on average, smarter and more interested in learning than the children who didn't go into the program. And maybe that explains why they did 10% better on tests after the program. Maybe your program has no effect at all. It's just that you got the smart kids in it, and that made the program look good. That is an example of a selection effect. A case where it looks like a cause is B, but it's actually just that the instances of A that you tested were already more likely to be Bs for other reasons. Selection effects are contrasted with treatment effects, cases where the thing you're testing really causes the effect that it's thought to cause. In the education example, academic success is correlated with taking the special program. This could be due to a treatment effect, meaning the program causes kids to learn more or due to a selection effect, meaning the program selects students who are already good at learning. Selection effects are very often mistaken for treatment effects. Another example, you want to know if some vitamin improves people's health. So you look at people who take supplements of that vitamin regularly, and you find that they are healthier than the people who don't take it. You think this shows that the vitamin supplements are good for people. But actually, it's more likely a selection effect. People who take vitamins are more likely to also be exercising, eating healthy foods, and so on, which is why they would be healthier than average, even if the vitamins did absolutely nothing. Fataboutism. Similar to 2 quok, whataboutism occurs when someone criticizes something bad, and you respond with, what about X? Where X is some other bad thing. Example. Someone complains that the current president's proposed budget has a very high deficit. You say, what about the previous president? He had high deficits too. Or, someone complains that the president just murdered a child. You respond that some other political figure, from an opposing party, also murdered children. What about that? You demand. The reason people engage in whataboutism is that. 
rather than being interested in practical issues about what should be done in our current situation, they instead see political discussion as a kind of tribal contest, a competition between their side and the other side, where whoever makes their side look better wins. So they don't want attention focused on any flaws in one of their side's people, e.g., a politician from their own political party. So they try to divert attention to something that's bad about someone on the other side. The problem is that this practice systematically prevents evils from being addressed. For any evil in the world, unless it's literally the worst thing in the world, one can always identify some other, even worse evil, and say, what about that? For any evil done by any political leader, it will virtually always be true that some other leader from another party has some time committed a similar evil, and also that members of that person's party didn't do anything about it. If your response when you hear about any evil currently happening is to deflect attention to some past evil committed by another person or group, that means that evils never get addressed. Attention always gets deflected away by whataboutism. The next time someone else is doing something evil, that won't be addressed either, because people will say, what about, the present evil that wasn't properly addressed? 